Well, we've been walking through uh, the book of Revelation for uh, several weeks now, and so far in the first nine chapters of Revelation, we've seen three different sets of sevens. So we started out in chapters two and three, and there were seven messages to, the, to each of the seven churches that Revelation is written to. Then in chapters 4 through 8, we saw Jesus open the seven seals that sealed the scroll that contains God's sovereign plan of judgment and redemption. We saw each one of those seven seals opened. And uh, then the seventh of those seals opened up seven trumpets, and uh, that seventh seal contained those seven trumpets, and we're in the middle of looking at those seven trumpets. Uh, Now, the Back in the seals, the first six seals were separated from the seventh seal by an interlude. Uh, The first six seals were focused on uh, tribulation leading up to the return of Christ. Uh, And then in chapter 7, between the sixth seal and the seventh seal, there was an interlude that focused on the church. We saw how if we belong to the people of God, we're sealed and we receive God's protection through tribulation. We also saw how our journey through the great tribulation will ultimately end with us entering the presence of God for eternity. That was the interlude. And then chapter 8 picked up and finished the seals with the seventh seal. So there were six, an interlude, and then the seventh. And our passage today is one of those types of interludes again. Last week, we saw the first six trumpets, which were focused on tribulation leading up to the return in Christ. At the end of chapter 11, we're going to see the seventh trumpet, but chapter 10 and the first part of chapter 11 are an interlude between the sixth and seventh trumpets, and it's focused on the church. Uh, So with that, let's read Revelation 10, verse 1, through chapter 11, verse 14. And uh, since these words are breathed out by God and come with the very authority of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, if you're able, would you please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word? Revelation chapter 10, starting in verse 1, the Holy Spirit says, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it and earth and what is in it and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Then... The voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the scene on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. 
It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours out from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that is symbolically called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. I've titled this sermon, The Bittersweet Ministry of Prophecy. The Bittersweet Ministry of Prophecy. If you are a Christian, you are a prophet. Now, I'm not talking about the gift of prophecy. I'm not talking about the biblical office of prophet. What I mean is that prophets were called to speak God's word to God's world. And so is the church. Jesus referred to his followers as witnesses. As witnesses, we are called to testify to the truth of God. And this is an exciting role because Jesus has guaranteed that we will ultimately succeed. Jesus said that the world that we minister in is like a field white unto harvest, just waiting for laborers to enter it. And we saw just a few weeks ago in Revelation 7 how one day there's going to be followers from Jesus around the throne from every nation and every tribe and every people and every language. That's the sweetness 
of our ministry of prophecy. But this is also a difficult role because we prophesy in a world that hates Jesus. We say repent to a world that frankly just wants to do whatever they feel like. We say receive the grace of God to a world that thinks that they already have everything that they need. We say Jesus is Lord to a world that doesn't want a Lord and in fact killed our Lord. And that's the bitterness of the ministry of prophecy. The main thing I want us to see in Revelation 10 and 11 today is that Jesus calls us to the bittersweet ministry of prophecy. He calls us to the bittersweet ministry of prophecy. And we'll unpack what this bittersweet ministry of prophecy entails by looking at four truths from Revelation 10 and 11. So four truths. Number one, our message is bittersweet. Our message is bittersweet. Get this from chapter 10. Chapter 10 begins with John hearing something as he's heard many things in Revelation so far, but this time he hears something that he didn't get to write down. Uh, An angel comes down from heaven roaring like a lion, and then the, the seven thunders respond, and John hears the seven thunders. He's getting ready to write down what the seven thunders say, but then he hears a voice in verse 4 that says, seal up what the seven thunders have said. Don't write it down. This scene repeats what happened to the prophet Daniel. Daniel was told several times to seal up certain words that were given to him because they were for a later time, the time of the end. So whatever the thunders said, it wasn't time for it to be made known. And and, you know, this is a reminder to us that God has not chosen to reveal to us everything that can be known. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. God has not revealed everything that can be known, But he has revealed everything that we need to know. We may not have all of the answers to all of our questions. We may not have an exhaustive account of what the future holds. But we can trust that God will reveal what he wants to reveal when it needs to be revealed. As the passage goes on, we see that there there is something that God does want to reveal through John. Look at verses 5 through 7 again. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever and created heaven and what is in it and earth and what is in it and the sea and what is in it that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. The word uh, mystery in Scripture refers to something hidden, waiting to be revealed. Uh, As we see this mystery that's getting ready to be revealed, we see this angel 
Uh, this angel is a representative of God, and as he stands on the sea and the land, it symbolizes how God, the one that the angel represents, is the owner of all creation. The eternal God created the world and everything in it. He's sovereign over the world and everything in it, and he has a perfect plan for the world and everything in it. And he is carrying out this plan. The angel tells John that the seventh trumpet will be the completion of of this plan. The mystery will be fulfilled. What is hidden now will be revealed. God will reveal what he wants to reveal when it needs to be revealed. Uh, The angel says that God has told his prophets that he had a plan. And this passage does a lot to show us that John is one of these prophets. He's in the line of these prophets. We already uh, saw how this scene echoes Daniel. Well, this scene also echoes Ezekiel. Because what happens next as Daniel approaches for this scroll is a reenactment of what Ezekiel, or what happened to Ezekiel when he was commissioned as a prophet in Ezekiel 3. Now, this angel has a scroll in his hand. John has to go take the scroll from the angel uh, and eat it. And when he ate it, it was sweet in his mouth, but it made his stomach bitter. And it seems that this moment sets up the next major section of the book of Revelation that starts in chapter 12. Uh, John's told in verse 11 here, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. And as Revelation continues, we'll see that God has more to say through John about his plan for the world and for peoples and nations and languages and kings. And this message that he has that he's continuing to give is primarily a message of judgment, as we've already seen. And this message of God's judgment is bitter sweet. It's sweet in that it brings justice. Injustices are made right. Evil is eradicated. Vindication is coming. Yet at the same time, God's word of judgment is bitter. Creation is destroyed. People reject God's word. His wrath is poured out. It's bitter and it's sweet. And the bittersweet message that John was given to proclaim reflects how we have been given a bittersweet message to proclaim. As witnesses, our message is bittersweet. On the one hand, our message is sweet. We get to proclaim the good news of redemption and forgiveness. We get to tell people that they can know God. On the other hand, our message is bitter. We proclaim that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We proclaim that all people everywhere deserve God's wrath. And that if anyone does not repent and trust in Jesus, they will spend eternity separated from God. Our message is bitter and sweet. As you carry out your prophetic ministry, let me encourage you, don't leave out the bitter or the sweet. Some people get really excited to focus on the bitter part. They get really excited to speak prophetically about the sin that they see around them. They like to talk about how bad the world is, 
but they leave out the sweetness of the grace of God. The church in Ephesus, one of the churches that Revelation was written to, that was their problem. They hated all the right things, but they had forgotten the love that they had at first. Other people want to only focus on the sweet part. They want to talk about how much God loves everyone. They want to talk about mercy and acceptance. But they leave out the bitter reality of sin and judgment. The church in Thyatira was like this. They were big on love, but they were tolerating idolatry and immorality among them. So I wonder, as you consider the ministry of prophecy that God has given you as a witness, are you tempted to leave out the bitter or leave out the sweet of the truth of God's word? As a witness, I must remember that I am called to testify to the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me God. That's the role of a witness. And the whole truth is both comforting and uncomfortable. Our message is bittersweet. But second truth, our mission is is unstoppable. Our mission is unstoppable. John sees another vision in Revelation 11, starting in verses 1 and 2. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city, for 42 months. So throughout the New Testament, the temple is used as a metaphor for the church. God no longer dwells in a building. He dwells in His people, the church. So the temple, the court, the holy city, we should take all of these as symbols uh, that highlight different aspects of the church. And this is a bittersweet picture in these verses of both God's protecting presence and God's promise of persecution. On the one hand, it's a picture of God's protecting presence. The measuring is like the picture of sealing that we saw in chapter 7. It's a promise that even through tribulation, the church will stand and God's presence will still be among us. On the other hand, this is a picture of God's promise of persecution. The temple court is trampled by the nations. The church will face opposition from the world. We'll talk more about that a little later. But in verses 3 and 4, another picture is introduced here. The two witnesses. Look at those two verses. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. So the two witnesses are called the two olive trees and the two lampstands. And this is a, uh, a reference to Zechariah 4. You can mark that down and, and look it up. Zechariah 4, uh, in that chapter, Zechariah saw... Uh, a lampstand with seven lamps on it and two olive trees beside it. 
uh, providing the, the oil for the lamp. And we should understand the two witnesses here in Revelation 11 to be a symbol for the church. We've already seen lampstands representing the churches in Revelation, right? Revelation 1, Jesus said the lampstands are the churches. And throughout Revelation, Jesus calls his churches to be witnesses, to testify, to bear witness. Uh, so, but then why the number two? Why two witnesses? Well, this is based on how the Old Testament law required two witnesses in order for a testimony to be considered valid. Uh, and so all of these pictures come together as symbols highlighting the prophetic ministry of the church. In these verses, as we see Jesus giving authority to his witnesses to prophesy, this is a picture of the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 18 and 19, Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. If you're a Christian, you're a witness. You are called as a prophet to the nations. Uh, these two witnesses are to prophesy for 1,260 days, three and a half years. That's the same amount of time as the 42 months in verse 2, that time that the nations would trample the holy city. Uh, other places in Revelation, this period is talked about, it's referred to as time, times, and half a time, three and a half years. And this is a symbolic period of time that's used several places throughout Revelation to refer to the time between Jesus' first coming and Jesus' second coming. This time, as we have already seen just in these four, first four verses of chapter 11, it's a time of difficulty and persecution, as we see with the, the trampling of the holy city for 42 months, but it's also a time to bear witness, as we see these two witnesses authorized to proclaim uh, the testimony, the prof uh, prophecy of God. It's a time for the church to prophesy. John describes the prophetic ministry of the two witnesses in verses 5 and 6. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours out from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. If you are familiar with the Old Testament, there should be all sorts of bells going off in your ears as you hear those verses. All of this imagery echoes the ministry of the Old Testament prophets. God told Jeremiah that his words would be like fire and the people who heard them would be like wood and the fire, his words, would consume the wood, the people. Elijah was given the ability to stop the rain, interestingly enough, for three and a half years while he prophesied in his ministry. Uh, Moses was given the ability to turn water into blood and God used him to bring all sorts of plagues on Egypt. Uh, so, you know, back in chapter 10, we already saw how John is in this line of God's prophets. Well, what we see here is that the church has been given a prophetic ministry too. The church is in this line of the prophets. We carry on the ministry of the Old Testament prophets as we bear witness to Christ. Uh, this week I heard uh, Pastor Arthur Jackson, Arthur Jackson quoted as saying, the prophets all rendezvous in Revelation. That's what we're seeing here. 
And what I want us to see, particularly in these these verses, is that the ministry of the church, this prophetic ministry, is unstoppable. What we see in this text is that Jesus gives his witnesses the authority to bear witness for a set period of time that will not end until Jesus decides it ends. Anyone who tries to harm these witnesses before the time comes is doomed to be killed themselves. It's only when they have finished their testimony that they're allowed to be killed, as we see in verse 7. Our mission as witnesses is unstoppable until Jesus has fulfilled His purpose for us. A few uh, months, uh, going on years now uh, ago, we walked through the book of Acts as a church. And, and didn't we see this in the book of Acts? How the mission of God is unstoppable. No matter how hard the opponents of the gospel came against the church, the word continued to spread without hindrance. Verses like Acts 19 and 20 sum it up. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily the mission of jesus is unstoppable however only jesus can determine what purpose each of us play in the mission sometimes jesus's purpose for us is like the purpose he had for peter in acts 12 peter was in prison about to be executed for preaching the gospel, but Jesus sent an angel to miraculously rescue him from prison. God's mission is unstoppable. He's going to fulfill his purpose. But then other times, his purpose for us is like the purpose he had for James in that same chapter, Acts 12. The apostle James was the brother of John who wrote Revelation. And right about the time that Peter was imprisoned and then miraculously rescued, James was killed by King Herod. James was tragically martyred. Peter was miraculously rescued. We don't always know what God's purpose for us is in his mission, but we do know that his mission is unstoppable. And nothing will get in our way until he fulfills his purpose for each of us, whatever that purpose may be. James was killed not because an obstacle got in the way of God's mission, but because Jesus' purpose for James was fulfilled. Peter was rescued not because Peter was unstoppable, but because Jesus had not completed his purpose for Peter yet. The mission is unstoppable. He will fulfill his purpose for us. David says in Psalm 138:8, the Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. The mission that God has called us to as witnesses is unstoppable. So given this mission that Jesus has called us to, this unstoppable mission, I wonder how much of your life is devoted to that which is stoppable. Here Jesus has given us this mission that's unstoppable, this mission that will prevail, this mission that He is reigning over, that He will complete. Yet how much are you giving your life to things that are stoppable? Maybe 
you devote yourself to saving up money, investing, and trying to, to build up this, this nest egg. And you know what? Saving for the future can be wise, but I wonder, are you banking on a future that you can't guarantee? Maybe you devote yourself to staying healthy. And you know what? Scripture says that bodily training is of some value. But are you putting so much energy into it even though you're not promised tomorrow? I just use those as a couple of examples of the kinds of things that we often devote our energy and thoughts and time and focus on that are ultimately stoppable, that aren't guaranteed to succeed, that aren't guaranteed to go our way. We give ourselves to those when over here Jesus has called us to get in on, to come alongside him as he completes this mission that is unstoppable, that will prevail, that will never fail. So instead of giving ourselves, devoting our lives, everything we have to things that can fail and can be stopped, why not devote our lives to the mission that cannot fail? Why not invest time and energy and resources into the Great Commission, which is guaranteed to succeed? Why not give yourself to making disciples, which will matter for all of eternity? Let's live like our mission is unstoppable. Third truth, our enemy is strong. Our enemy is strong. Jesus's witnesses will face strong opposition look at verse 7 and when they have finished their testimony the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them john is going to see a full description of this beast in chapter 13 and we'll unpack more of that when we get there but What we see here is that the beast comes from the bottomless pit where Satan rules over his demons, as we saw back in chapter 9. So I understand the beast to represent the way in which Satan works through earthly kingdoms and governments. Uh, We see in Daniel, the prophet Daniel, how Uh, He saw these images of beasts that represented kingdoms. And I understand the beast here to represent the way in which Satan works through earthly kingdoms and governments. For the seven churches who received revelation, the beast was Rome. But this has been a pattern that has continued long since the fall of the Roman Empire. Uh, The picture here, again, is that Satan is at work through earthly kingdoms to war against the church. This picture continues in verse 8, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. Sodom of Abraham's day, Egypt of Moses' day, Jerusalem of Jesus' day and Rome of John's day are all examples of earthly kingdoms hostile toward God, His Christ, and His people. And as we look at this picture, this story is not suggesting that 
all true believers will be martyred or that there will come a time that the entire church is annihilated. Instead, the point is that Satan is at work through earthly kingdoms to kill the church. And those who belong to the kingdom of the world, as opposed to the kingdom of God, will celebrate the defeat of Christians. Look at verses 9 and 10 again. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. The world celebrates the demise of the church. When these witnesses die, it's an international holiday. Why? Because the church has been a torment to the world, a thorn in its side. All that talk about repentance, please, let me just do what I want. All that talk about judgment, stop judging me. All that talk about Jesus being Lord, I I don't want to Lord other than myself. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I wonder, do you ever look down on Christians? Maybe you look down on Christians as uh, naive or ignorant or whatever the case may be. Do you look down on Christians or think of Christians as uh, a bother? Well, did you know that the Bible's response to that is not Why don't you think Christians are great? As if it's surprised. The Bible actually expects you to look down on Christians. The Bible expects you to think of Christians as a bother and to think that your life would be more free if it wasn't for the influence of Christians. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, that the God of this world... The devil, the one who empowers the beast to war against the church, has blinded your mind. He wants, the devil wants to keep you from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ. But the God who said, let there be light, and there was light, He wants to shine into your heart. He wants to take away the devil's blinders. He wants you to see him for who he is as beautiful and glorious and all satisfying. He wants you to know him, to enjoy him, to glory in him forever. And even though you've rebelled against him, he has made a way for you to be forgiven by sending Jesus to pay the penalty for your sin against him. If you will turn away from living for yourself and turn to Jesus, you can know God. You can go from being an enemy of God to being a child of God if you trust in Jesus. And if you have any questions about what it means to trust in Jesus, I'll be right over here afterward. I would love to talk to you about that. Christians 
we are called to prophesy to a world that is hostile toward God. Now, like not every single Christian is called to die, so not every single unbeliever wants to kill Christians. Nevertheless, in this world, we are citizens of heaven prophesying behind enemy lines. Opposition is not a sign that something has gone wrong. It's not something that we can avoid. We follow a hated Lord, which means we will be hated by those who hate Him. While we shouldn't seek out opposition, we should also not shrink back in order to dodge opposition. When it comes to sharing your faith, do you ever hold back in order to avoid conflict? Let's remember that we are not called to preach the gospel only when it is acceptable. We are called to preach in season and out of season. And the eternal destiny of souls around us depends on them hearing the gospel from us. So let's not keep our mouths shut just to avoid opposition. Don't let fear of opposition keep you from proclaiming the good news that will bring people to Christ. We are called to prophesy despite the fact that our enemy is strong. Fourth truth, though our enemy is strong, our victory is certain. Our victory is certain. The story of two witnesses, of these two witnesses, does not end in death. Look at verse 11. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Like Ezekiel saw the breath of life enter the valley of dry bones, so Jesus sees, uh, excuse me, so John sees the breath of life enter these two witnesses. The world was celebrating their death just moments ago, but now this same world is filled with great fear at their resurrection. And, and their newfound life continues in verse 12. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. I want you to see how the story of these witnesses mirrors the story of our Savior. Do you remember how in the messages, Antipas, who died for the sake of Christ, was called the faithful and true witness? Just like in chapter 1, Jesus was called the faithful and true witness. Jesus' witnesses follow in the footsteps of the great witness, Jesus himself. Jesus ministered for about three and a half years, and he was killed, and he was resurrected, and he ascended to heaven. Likewise, in this story, his witnesses minister for three and a half years, are killed, are resurrected, and ascend to heaven. Witnesses are called to follow in the footsteps 
of the witness, Jesus Christ. Uh, These witnesses are, are summoned up to heaven and their enemies watch them ascend. These enemies see the witnesses for who they are. They realize these people that they thought were a nuisance, that they thought were tormenting them, that they thought they were better than, actually are the people who belong to the God of heaven who has just welcomed them home. While the witnesses are vindicated, their enemies are judged in verse 13. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. All throughout Revelation, earthquakes symbolize God's judgment. And so here we see both God's judgment and people's response to His judgment. It says they gave glory to God. And when it says that, we we shouldn't take this to mean that this earthquake uh, makes them all believers. Instead, it's that this judgment, the ascension of the witnesses, the judgment on the city, all of this is unmistakably from God. And the watching world sees it and acknowledges it as such. Not everyone will trust in Jesus as Savior, but every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus as Lord. The future is not bright for those who reject Christ. Verse 14 says, The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. We saw last week the last three trumpet judgments are also known as the three woes. The first woe was torment of unbelievers through the activity of demons. The second woe was an abundance of death of believers, or excuse me, of unbelievers through the activity of demons. And we'll see next week that the third woe is the final judgment at the return of Christ. In the end, the enemies of the saints will receive God's judgment but the saints will be vindicated. These verses give us a picture of the fulfillment of promises that Jesus made all throughout the seven messages to the churches about the one who conquers. The one who conquers, he said, will eat from the tree of life. Uh, The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The one who conquers will be a pillar in God's temple. Uh, The one who conquers will sit with Jesus on his throne as he conquered and sat uh, with his father on his throne. This is the future for those who persevere to the end, who continue in following the Lamb all the way to the end. Remember that future vindication when you experience shame in the present. Remember the vindication of the future when you experience shame in the present. Maybe as you are seeking to walk faithfully, maybe as you're seeking to follow Christ and and just honor Him the best you can, there's people in your life that think you're ignorant for believing in God. Uh, Maybe someone thinks that you're hateful for affirming what the Bible has said for thousands of years. Remember that vindication is coming later. Don't worry about spending energy on defending yourself. Don't worry about your reputation. God will vindicate you. God will make everything clear in the end. For now, you're just called to be faithful. 
Keep on following Christ. Keep on proclaiming the good news. Keep on prophesying because our victory is certain. Jesus calls us to the bittersweet ministry of prophecy. And our message is bittersweet. But our mission is unstoppable. And even though our enemy is strong, our victory is certain. So keep on prophesying. Keep on following the Lamb. Keep on staying faithful and bearing witness to Christ. Telling the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth until our Savior returns. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word to us. Thank you for a vision of what you've called us to during this time as we await the return of Christ. Thank you for giving us our unstoppable mission. Thank you for giving us your word. Thank you that even though our enemy is strong, you are with us. You're present, and you will bring us home. Lord, I pray that you would move us to be increasingly faithful to the mission you've given us, that we would open our mouths and speak your word, speak your truth to a world that desperately needs to hear it, and do it all to your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.